Well, this morning we'll continue our study through Luke, and in particular we're in chapter 22, the tail end of chapter 22, so 22 verse 63, on into chapter 23 verse 12. Um, there's a bare bones outline on the back of the uh, worship guide there if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on so you can see where we're headed. Luke chapter 23 verse 63 through chapter 23 verse 12. Um, most of us in this room, we probably remember the rhyme, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me or break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, I don't know if that's that prevalent anymore. I thought about it. I don't know if my kids know that. I don't know if we told that to our kids, but I remember growing up and hearing, hearing my parents say that often. And you know what that rhyme gets at is that physical attack is in a fundamentally different category than verbal attack. And in particular, we use it to help our kids know you don't need to retaliate because of something that somebody says, which is something you're always having to to remind your kids. But even though that's true, that principle, undoubtedly true, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that along with the other gospel writers, Luke focuses our attention not so much on the physical pain of the cross. Because remember, so now we're the passage this morning, Jesus has been arrested. There's going to be sort of these fake trials that are no good before these different groups of people where everybody kind of condemns him. Next week, We'll actually get to uh, Barabbas being released and on from there, we'll see the crucifixion. Well, the interesting thing, when you look at what the gospel writers do and where their focus is, we're gonna see it with Luke. It's not so much on the physical pain of the cross. In fact, what we see is more time is given to the humiliation of Jesus in these events. And that's really what our passage is pressing on this morning. So hear the word of the Lord, Luke 22, 63. Through 23, verse 12. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led, away to their, led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Well, as we look at this passage, I think there's three main takeaways. And those are the three points that are on the back of the bulletin there. So first, first thing I think we're being called to do, notice Jesus's humiliation. 
Notice Jesus's humiliation. Second, notice mankind's stubbornness. And finally, appreciate the Lord's grace to you. So first, when, uh, when we read any section of narrative in scripture, so anytime there's a story, so, you know, you've got the, uh, the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, and that's just sort of straight teaching. But you look at the Old Testament, and you look at Acts, and you look at the Gospels, and it's stories, right? These particular things, this narrative that happens. Anytime there's a story, the main question we want to ask as Bible readers is, okay, what is it that the author of this passage, driven by the Holy Spirit, what is it that he wants me to see? What's he highlighting for me in this narrative? And, and one huge way to help answer that question is by looking for words and ideas that are repeated. So devotionally, when you're reading through a gospel, reading through the Old Testament, that's one of the first things you're looking for. Okay, what does the Lord want me to see in this passage? Which isn't, the place to start is not what does the Lord want Scott to see as opposed to Tim. The main place to start is no, what does God intend for everybody who reads this passage to see in this passage? Because again, scripture is objective truth. It's intended for all of us, right? There's a message there that can be discerned. And again, a, an important way to figure out that idea is, okay, what words or ideas are repeated? What's the author putting the emphasis on? So, so do we see that kind of thing in our passage? In our section of scripture this morning, between Peter's denial and the people demanding that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus, is there an idea that's repeated? And the answer is yes. It actually bookends our passage. Chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Okay, that's on the front end. Now look at the back end. Chapter 23, verse 11. And Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Okay, so Luke wants us to notice Jesus's humiliation. And again, that's the first point for us this morning. Notice Jesus's humiliation. It's not just that there's physical pain involved in Jesus's arrest and, and his crucifixion. There's also shame and humiliation. So these soldiers and, and officials, they're teasing Christ. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. It shouldn't have been, uh, been a surprise to the disciples. Jesus prophesied about this. Back in chapter 18, verse 32, he said this would happen. For the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So I just noticed this isn't in the manuscript, but... Hayes just left the auditorium and Maria is not here. Will the grown-up walk out? Thank you. Thanks, Lori. So Jesus had given this prophecy about this happening, not just the physical pain, but that there would be shame, there would be humiliation. He didn't just predict his arrest and crucifixion and resurrection. He also predicted this humiliation at the hands of these officials. And that's what our passage really focuses our attention on. And again, this might be different. You know, this might be something that oftentimes we've overlooked is the significance of the humiliation of Jesus. So why is this significant? So these guys making fun of Jesus is, is cruel for sure, but something much worse is coming, right? I mean, the crucifixion is coming. He's about to lose his life. So why does Luke focus our attention 
on what seems like a lesser bad thing. You know, you can think about it this way. If somebody broke into your house and took a bunch of your stuff, and then that next week you were recounting that story, you probably wouldn't say, and you know what I really want to talk about? They tracked leaves in my house. There were leaves all over the kitchen floor. That's not what you would say, because that is such a less bad thing than the fact that they took all of your stuff. So it seems like it should be the same type of thing here. Why is it that Luke is focusing on Jesus's humiliation and not focusing on the physical pain of, of the crucifixion? So consider this. This is wild. Consider this. In the English version of the Gospel of Luke, leading up to the crucifixion, there are about 150 words that are describing his humiliation. People teasing him, beating him in a way where, yeah, there's physical pain there, but it seems like the main thing that's going on is they're using that to humiliate him, to tease him. 150 words describing the humiliation of Jesus. When it comes to the crucifixion, the physical pain part, there's four words. There they crucified him. Isn't that wild? When you think about it, aren't you like, oh, that is interesting. Don't you think that if we were writing it, maybe the way that you've heard the cross focused on in the past, that you would say, no, let's write a ton about it, about the asphyxiation. You know, you can't breathe and there's so much blood there and the pain that would be in his hands and in his feet and, and the whole nine yards, the crown of thorns pressed down on his head. Yeah, four words given to that, to the physical pain about 150 words given to the humiliation that was involved here with Christ. So why the disparity? You know, why, why does Luke give so much attention to the humiliation? Here's what I think is happening. We're being reminded that even if Jesus's punishment would have been one insult. So just imagine a world in which Jesus doesn't go to the cross. There's no physical pain here. There's no death, just one insult. That still would have been the worst injustice committed in the history of the world. That's true, what I just said. Isn't that wild? Think about all the injustice that goes on in the world, even today, all the horrible things that are happening. And what scripture makes clear is, if it had just been one insult lobbed against the Son of God, that would have been a worse crime than any other injustice committed in the history of the universe. Now, now why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is God. That's why this is so significant. Jesus is God. And to insult the God of the universe, to, to humiliate our creator is a horrible crime. And in our passage, just like all the, the whole Bible, we've seen in the gospel of Luke over and over again, Luke is at pains to remind us that Jesus isn't just a man. He's also fully God. So go back to the very first scene in our passage. The soldiers, they'd arrested Jesus. They brought him to the house of the high priest. Look at how Luke characterizes their treatment of him. Verse 65. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So blasphemy is a sin against the Lord. It's basically when you treat the Lord as less than the Lord, when you treat God as less than God. And Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can characterize what they're doing to Jesus as blasphemy. That's because he's God. But then they take Jesus from there to the Sanhedrin, this group that had been set up by the Romans that would sort of have some local authority over, uh, over the Jews. Look at verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. 
But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Okay, so when Jesus says that, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the, of, of the power of God. He's quoting two Old Testament passages, and he's putting them together. So one of them is from Daniel chapter 7. The folks that, that do the companions study on Wednesday mornings, so they studied the book of Daniel. They're in Amos now. They studied Daniel not long ago. You'll remember this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It's a prophecy about Christ. And there it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Okay, so Jesus is the son of man who after his resurrection ascended to the right hand of God to be there with the father. But see, Jesus combines that reference with a reference from Psalm 110. Let me read that to you. Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And of course, Psalm 110 is really clearly talking about the one who sits at God's right hand as also God. It's not just talking about a guy. It's talking about one who is fully God. Remember, that's that's the exact point Jesus made back in chapter 20, verse 41. You remember this? He quoted Psalm 110. This is what he says back there. You could look back. Chapter 20. Verse 41, he quotes Psalm 110, and then this is what Jesus says. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So what he's saying is the second character in Psalm 110 is David's Lord. Jesus is God. So by quoting that, he's making it clear once again. I'm not just fully man, I'm also fully God. In the Sanhedrin, they understand Jesus's reasoning there because look at their question, verse 70. He quotes that and then verse 70. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Now, when they say the son of God, when Jesus says son of God in the gospels, they intended to be a title of divinity. So in the Old Testament, individuals weren't called God's children. So collectively, there was a way that Israel was called God's son, but individual Israelites weren't called God's son. No, so here there's something unique that's happening. The son of God is God. So the idea is that somebody's son is the same kind of thing that they are. So my sons are the same kind of thing that I am. Jesus is the same kind of thing that God is. Jesus is God. And again, we know we're right about that because of the way that people react. Verse 71, he says he's the son of God. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They understand Jesus is letting it be said about him that he is God. Now, now after he's grilled by the Sanhedrin, they, they take him to this Roman authority named Pontius Pilate, who basically was like a local administrator for, for the Roman Empire. He was responsible for finances and for keeping law and order. That's the main thing that Pontius Pilate was put there by the Romans to do. They take Jesus to him because Pontius Pilate had to sign off on the death penalty. So they understood, yeah, we can convict Jesus of these crimes as, as Israel, but we can't put him to death unless the Romans tell us we can, because that's a rule that they've given to us. So they take him to Pontius Pilate to try to get him to sign off on these crimes. Again, we're thinking about the case in this passage that shows that Jesus is God. Look at the question Pilate asked him, chapter 23, verse 3. 
And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now again, Psalm 110, Daniel 7, God had made it clear the coming king wouldn't just be a man. He'd also be fully God. So that's tied up in this question. The king is divine. The king of the Jews would also be the God of the Jews. Look at Jesus' answer. End of verse 3. And he answered him, you have said so. So Jesus is God. And, and here's, we say all of that, we need that building block to make sense of this passage of scripture, to understand what we're supposed to do with it. What that means, because Jesus is God, that means everything that happens to Jesus in our passage is happening to God. That's the main takeaway. That's why we need everything I just talked about, because moving through this passage, we need to understand that. Everything that's happening to Jesus in this passage is happening to God. Now, with that in mind, let's look at the humiliation of Jesus. Go back to the beginning of our passage, chapter 22, verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? So these sinners are teasing God as they beat him. And, and at least one way they're teasing him was by blindfolding him and then taking turns hitting him and telling him to prophesy. So tell us, you can't see with your eyeballs, but you should know this. They're, they're teasing him. They're saying this guy thinks he's a prophet. His followers think he's a prophet, but they're teasing him because they're saying clearly he's not. So let's make fun of the fact that he thinks he's a prophet. So they blindfold him and they hit him. And they say, okay, which one of us hit you? It's incredible, right? You think about this. These, these finite sinners, these guards that are around him, these created things are shaming their own creator, the infinite God of the universe. That's an incredible thing. We're, we're supposed to see the insanity of this situation. We're supposed to see that dissonance. Notice the humiliation of Jesus. The, the humiliation of the next scene isn't quite as blatant, but, but it's still there. Look at how Jesus is treated before the Sanhedrin. Verse 67, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So he's, he's being questioned by these authorities before this human court, the Sanhedrin. They're, they're telling Jesus not that they need to answer to him. But they're telling Jesus that he needs to answer to them. C.S. Lewis talks about this in an essay called God in the Dock, where he talks about how sinful man has turned things upside down. So it's God who should be our judge and we should be in the defendant's chair. But mankind, sinful man flips it where we put ourselves up in the spot of the judge and we put God in the defendant's chair. That's exactly what we see happening here. That's what these folks are doing with Jesus in verse 67. They're, they're treating Jesus like he's under their judgment. It becomes even more clear in verse 71. After Jesus consents to the fact that, that he's God's son, they, they convict him. Verse 71, then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They're putting God in the defendant's chair. And then they do the same thing when they take him to Pilate. They're there accusing him. Look at chapter 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him. Verse 3, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So, so more interrogation of God. Like he's a criminal. And they're interrogating him. And they're going to be in charge of, of what happens to him after they hear this evidence. That's an insane thing. But, you know, we see the insanity of it here in this passage. But, but really, that's the kind of thing that happens 
around us pretty regularly. So in fact, anytime somebody criticizes the Bible, that's that person putting themselves in the judge's seat, putting God in the defendant's chair. Okay, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna interrogate you here. I'm gonna decide if what you've said here is true or not. Anytime somebody, somebody says that a loving God would not permit evil in this world, so a loving God would not let what's happening in this world go on, same thing. It's putting God in the defendant's chair. They're putting themselves in the judge's chair, and they're saying that he's guilty. Anytime somebody attacks the idea that salvation is only available through trust in Christ, so there's an exclusivity here. You only get to God through Christ, and people attack that idea. Same thing. They're putting themselves in the judge's chair, putting God in the defendant's chair and declaring him guilty. That's a crazy thing. As sinners, mankind should be like Job, who in chapter 40, verse 4 says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I say to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That's the proper response. <laughs> is you realize that as sinners, we're in the defendant's chair. God is the judge. To flip that on its head is, is crazy, but the folks in our passage, that's exactly what they're doing. They're treating Christ like a criminal. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus and you feel conviction about all of this, maybe you think, you know what? That's the way that I've responded to the God of the universe is that I've sort of pitched criticism at God. I've acted like he's the defendant and I'm the judge. And you're thinking to yourself now, but that's not the case. That's not reality. God's the judge and I'm the defendant. The good news for you is that that sin, as well as all your other sins, can be forgiven merely by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. That's, that's the Christian gospel. That's all we have to offer you here this morning, right? But that's a good thing to be able to offer you. It's what the Lord's offering you is that all of your sins can be forgiven if you will simply trust in Christ alone, that his work on the cross was enough, just like you saw us celebrate the Lord's Supper, that his work on the cross was enough to cover all of your sins. So if you want to think about that, if you want to talk about that more, about responding to the gospel, come and talk to me after the service or email me. My email address is on the back of the bulletin. You can talk to one of the other pastors here, one of the other members here about the gospel. Well, we'll pilot... He sees this situation go down and he figures out he doesn't want anything to do with, at least on the record, convicting Jesus. And he's a clever guy. So he figures out, he figures out a way to kind of pass the buck here. Look at verse seven of chapter 23. And when he heard that Jesus belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So Pilate is smart. As soon as he hears that Jesus is from Galilee, then he thinks to himself, ooh, you know what? That's where Herod is. Herod is over that particular region. So I don't have to worry about this anymore. I can make this not my problem. I'll just send him over to Herod. And that's what he does. Okay, look at how Herod thinks about Jesus. Again, we're looking at the humiliation of Christ. Look at what happens with Herod, chapter 23, verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod basically just wants Jesus to entertain him. He wants to see a miracle. He wants to see something impressive, right? To make his afternoon more exciting than, than he thought it was going to be, to add something to his day. And if we think about it, people in our world oftentimes treat, treat Jesus that same way. 
They're really not interested in Jesus being a central part of their life. They certainly don't want to follow him as their Lord and submit to him fully. They just want him to do something for them on the side. Just help out in some particular way, maybe make their marriage better or keep their kids out of trouble or, or make our country more prosperous. You know, whatever it is, there's a thing they want Jesus to do on the side. And the truth is, as Christians, maybe we're tempted to do that sometimes. I think we are. I certainly am. So do you ever find yourself looking for Jesus to just add some good thing to your life? Just make some particular part of your life better. So, so maybe you're not making Jesus the defendant, like we just talked about, where you're the judge. But, but maybe you're making him more like a hired service provider. Like somebody you would call to come in your house to fix something. So he comes in and you say, I'm not interested in you overhauling the house, but there's this leaky faucet. So just concentrate on that thing. I'd like to enlist you to do that thing. It's, it's easy to think that way sometimes, but, but what the Bible makes clear is Jesus isn't here merely to add some kind of service to our life. He, he's not here to just do one or two signs that you want him to do and, and then be discarded until we need him again. That's the way Herod is treating Jesus. Again, which means that's the way he's treating the God of the universe. He, he's called on God to entertain him. And it's interesting, Herod's the only questioner in this passage that Jesus doesn't respond to. He responds to the other questions. He answers the Sanhedrin in chapter 22, verse 70. He answers Pilate in chapter 23, verse 3. He doesn't respond to Herod. Chapter 23, verse 9. So Herod questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Isn't that interesting? He, he doesn't respond to the person that is so blatantly just trying to use him for these particular ends of entertainment or for his own benefit. He's the God of the universe. He won't allow himself to be used in that way. Well, just like the opening scene of our passage, look at the final act of humiliation before Herod, verse 11. And Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So it's kind of like what they did at the beginning where they blindfold him and they say prophesy because they're saying, you think you're a prophet. That's so silly because you clearly aren't a prophet. It's the same thing that's happening here. They're dressing him in fancy clothes saying, this guy thinks he's a king. How ridiculous is that? So they're dressing him in these clothes so that he looks silly in their eyes. They're, they're making fun of him. And of course, the irony is they're treating him like God to make fun of him but he's actually God. And they're so far away from that that they think they can make fun of him for that point. But see, all this humiliation that's leveled against Jesus in our passage, it's all being leveled against the God of the universe. So, so with all of this, here's the question for you. Here's the question for me. Does this humiliation of Jesus make you angry? Does it, does it raise your blood pressure? Or not really. It's easy to just hear these things and just think, ah, not that big of a deal. Of course, you can compare it to other things, right? That's the beauty is there's other things in life that make us angry that we can compare the humiliation of Jesus to. Okay, I know what that makes me feel. How does it compare to these other things? So the thought of a tax hike, would that make you more angry? Would that raise your blood pressure more than the humiliation of God? in this passage? Does, does your justice alarm go off louder for certain social causes around you? But you read this account and it just doesn't really register. 
or, or to get back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, do you get angry when you think about the physical pain of the crucifixion, but not too angry when you see this humiliation of Christ? If so, I think Luke is instructing us to, to recalibrate. The, these sinners, they've beaten God and made fun of God and questioned God like a criminal and convicted God in their own minds, at least. And again, if the cross never happened, if Jesus had never died, the events of this passage would be the worst crime that's ever happened in the history of the universe. So we need to notice the humiliation of Jesus. That's what Luke is pointing us to. But, but it's not just something about Jesus we get to notice in our passage. We also get to see something about mankind. And that's our second point this morning. Notice mankind's stubbornness. So there, there's one character noted in our passage who doesn't think Jesus is worthy of capital punishment, although he still ends up handing him over. So it's not like Pilate is a great guy. But at least initially, he sort of says this thing that any right-thinking person should see. Look at chapter 23, verse 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So he says, okay, it doesn't, you guys want this guy to be killed. You want him to be convicted in this way. I, guys, I just don't see it. I don't see the evidence stacking up to, to make that clear. Look at how the people respond. Verse 5 of 23. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So they respond by urgently saying that Jesus deserves death. Isn't that wild? They're so fixated on it. You can see how bent they are on murdering Jesus, how stubborn they are. They're standing there saying the same things when Herod is evaluating Jesus. Look at chapter 23, verse 10. Again, the stubbornness of mankind. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Again, Luke is throwing in these adjectives, right? Or these adverbs. I think it's an adverb. I was never great at English. They're saying these guys are so fixated on seeing Christ killed. They're so opposed to him. And that's why this group, they're so opposed to Christ that they lie when they're listing out these charges. You might have noticed this when we read through it before. Look at chapter 23, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ the king. You might remember that, but... But they say that Jesus had told the Jews to not give taxes to the Roman Empire. Not true. We saw that in Luke's gospel. He says the exact opposite. Chapter 20, verse 24. Jesus says, show me a denarius. That was a coin they had. He says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's, the head of the Roman Empire. He said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So again, they're so bent on having Jesus be murdered that they lie. They trump up these charges, things that are blatantly, patently false. It's that same group. He, he did that before the religious authorities. Those are the same people that are here saying the exact opposite. He tells us not to pay taxes. That's how stubborn they are in their hatred of Christ. In fact, their hatred of, the hatred of Jesus even brings together two enemies in our passage. You might have noticed that. It's the last verse in our passage. Chapter 23, verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. That's an incredible thing, right? When there's two individuals and they really hate one another, the only thing that can bring them together is a greater hatred. So I've seen 
Maria and her family who are huge Kentucky basketball fans, I've seen them instantly be united with other basketball fans from other teams that they would not get along with in their hatred of Duke. That's what it takes sometimes. So two people that hate one another, the only thing that can bring them together, hatred, a greater hatred for a third party. That's what we see here. These two folks hate Jesus more than they hate one another. And the hatred of Christ brings them together. Listen to how Psalm chapter two, verse two says it. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So what hatred can bring together all of mankind, even kingdoms that, that hate one another, the hatred of God and the hatred of his chosen savior, Jesus Christ. It's greater than other hatreds. That's how stubborn mankind is in our opposition to Christ. Look at the way Jesus sums it up. The stubbornness of these crowds. He sums it up in chapter 22, verse 67 through 68. They say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So Jesus knew I can say anything that I wanna say right now. You guys judgment of me isn't gonna change. You're not gonna be a fan of me. You're going to continue to convict me. You will never believe in me. So the question is why? Jesus is obviously an innocent man. He doesn't deserve to die, doesn't deserve to be beaten, doesn't deserve to be humiliated. Even if he wasn't God in the flesh, he wouldn't deserve those things. So why are they so stubborn in their hatred of Christ? The answer is because on our own, in our sinful human nature, we will always reject Jesus every single time, 100 out of 100, thousand out of a thousand, a million out of a million. On our own, in our sinful human nature, we will always reject Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, so the one that God doesn't interfere with, the one who God hasn't given his, given his spirit to, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the sinful nature we're born with, it's so hostile to God. It's so clueless about spiritual realities. The only thing that can overcome that cluelessness and that hostility is the spirit of God. That is it. We will continue on our way as far away from the Lord as we can get unless the spirit opens our eyes, softens our hearts to see the goodness of the gospel. Aside from that, a person will 100% of the time reject Christ. So the way we say it in Article 7 of our church's confession of faith, we say, we believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated by new birth. That regeneration involves a holy disposition being given to the mind, and that is affected by the Holy Spirit. So see, apart from the work of the Spirit, people will always reject Christ. Don't forget the way Jesus said it. He says it in this great punchy way. Luke chapter 16 Verse 31, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now that's something. That is an indictment about how bent we are on rejecting the Lord in our own nature. Even if you saw a dead man stand up and somebody said, hey, he's standing up because of Jesus Christ. You should believe in Jesus. If the spirit didn't open your eyes, you would not believe in Jesus. Now, is that crazy? That's crazy, but that's true. That's how bent we are against the Lord in our own nature. 
There, there are lots of ironies in our passage, but one of the best ones is that at the very beginning of verse 64, the, these men put a blindfold on Jesus, but they're really the ones that are blind. They just don't see that he really is God. So notice mankind's stubbornness. Now, as we close with our final point, all of what we've said is only a problem for someone if they're a human. So anybody that's in this room, there's a squirrel in here somewhere. The squirrel's fine. All of us are in trouble. Every human is in trouble. We, we've got this same stubborn human nature that's bent against Christ. And that's a huge problem for everybody who's ever lived because of where Jesus is now, where he went after the resurrection and ascension. Look again at what he says in chapter 22, verse 69. He says, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You know what he's reminding his enemies of? Jesus is so clever. What he's reminding his enemies of is he's about to be elevated to a place where they can no longer hurt him. And where all of a sudden he's in a place of authority. They're no longer to, able to attack him there. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It's like one old Georgia Tech football coach said. I know you guys have a huge interest in old Georgia Tech football coaches. So he didn't have a great relationship with the media. He's kind of a crusty guy. They attacked him a lot. He didn't like that. He didn't really care, but he was always sure to say, I don't care what you guys think about me. But in, in his press conference where he's announcing that he's retiring, he says, you know what? You guys can call me all the names you want, but tomorrow you'll have to call me long distance. And that was kind of his way for saying, I'm, I'm out of here. You guys can't really do anything to, to hurt me. Jesus is about to be taken away from these attacks. Verse 69, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. But I don't think that's all Jesus was getting at by quoting that psalm because he cuts the quotation short, but he knows that they know the rest of the verse. Again, I'll read you the whole thing. Psalm 110 verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he's sort of subversively telling them, hey, not only am I going to be taken from you, you can't attack me. One day I'm going to be your judge. One day I'm coming back. My enemies will be made my footstool. Even before crucifying him, they, they've humiliated the son of God and he's, he's going to pay back for that. He's going to make it right. But again, the thing is, we've done the same thing. Even if you're here and you're a Christian, the majority of the folks in this world, not in this world, the majority of the folks in this room, you still spend at least a portion of your life rejecting Christ. Even if it was short by the Lord's grace, even if you were saved at an early age, you spent some of your life rejecting the Lord. We know that because scripture teaches nobody is born into this world as a Christian. You have to be born again. We come into this world as enemies of Christ. So the judgment the folks in our passage deserve for humiliating Jesus, you and I deserve that same judgment. We've done that same thing. But see, here's the incredible thing about the gospel, about the good news of Christ. Jesus is undergoing humiliation from sinners like us is part of how he achieved forgiveness of the sin of humiliation from sinners like us. Listen to what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, teased, humiliated, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. 
When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges. This is the significant part. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Jesus's humiliation was part of him standing in your place, part of him standing in my place and be, being treated as a sinner that culminated in his death on the cross where he paid for our sins as our substitute. As Hebrews 12, 2 says, he endured the cross even though he, the experience was full of shame. That's what we see here in our passage. So our, our humiliating Jesus was, was the path God used to provide salvation. He was treated like a sinner so we can be treated like we're righteous. We switch places with him. He was our substitute. He was treated as insignificant, so you can be treated with the significance of a child of God. So everything we read about in this passage, Jesus was doing this for his father, but also for us, the church. And he was doing it, as Romans 5, 8 says, while we were still sinners. So while we were his enemies, he was doing these things for us, undergoing this humiliation. And, and you know the reason why you became Jesus's follower instead of staying his enemy? One reason, we've already talked about it. One reason, after his resurrection, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, the place where he could have unleashed judgment on everybody in this room that we rightly deserved, he didn't send judgment from God's right hand. This is what he sent instead, if you're here and you're a Christian. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So before Christ, you, you spent your time humiliating and rejecting God's Son, even if you didn't think that's what you were doing, that's what the rejection of God's Son is. But he didn't respond to you by sending judgment. He responded by sending his spirit to open your eyes and soften your heart that you would trust in Christ alone and your sins could be forgiven and you could be saved. Well, that's not the way we would have responded to those who wrongly humiliated us. But that's the way Christ has responded to you. That's the way he's responded to me. So our stubborn humiliation of Christ wasn't punished by the Lord. Instead, he saved you. He's so kind to us. What do we draw from this at the end? We appreciate the Lord's grace to us. We appreciate the Lord's grace to you in the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. And Father, we're so thankful. We confess, Father, that, that we, we don't get righteously angry enough when we read passages like this. Father, we understand that it was horribly unjust. We don't have words to get at how bad it was that the Son of God, fully God, was humiliated and shamed. Father, we know that, that we took part in that. Father, outside of Christ, we were rejecting him. And outside of Christ, we would have been among those crowds that were attacking him. We deserve judgment for that. We're so thankful, Father, that instead, Christ has given us mercy, that he offered himself on our behalf. We're so thankful, Father, for the humiliation of Christ because we know that that was him substituting himself for us. 
And we're so thankful, Father, that there is no longer any humiliation for Christ, but he is at your right hand. And Father, one day he will judge his enemies. We're so thankful that we are no longer among those enemies because of his grace and his mercy to us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.